Hello, everyone, and welcome back to these interview episodes of the SWW Show. I'm Mike, and today with me, a special guest from... Actually, probably relatively not that far away, because I think we're actually near each other in time zones. Um, so to, to get us started, do you mind introducing yourself and the game we're here to talk about? Sure, no problem. Uh, my name is Craig Stern. Uh, my studio is Sinister Design, and the game we're talking about today, uh, unless I've been grossly misled, is Together in Battle. Yep, we're going to talk about Together in Battle, your upcoming game coming in, and quote, I am looking at your Steam right now, so it's your fault if it's been delayed beyond that, is coming sometime in 2021. Yeah, uh, that might not, well, that may no longer be correct, <laughs> but that was the plan. Um, so Together in Battle is a strategy RPG and a team map mushed together. Um, you've got these procedurally generated characters with their own personalities and personal histories, hobbies, skills, and so on. And uh, by day, you field them in terms of tactical battles. By night, it becomes a social sim, and your characters build relationships and have drama. That's... So it's... it's I don't even know where to... To me, the best I could think of, like, feeling-wise, is, like, Persona and Fire Emblem of, like, games that I feel like do systems like that? Is that kind of what you're going for? A bit, yeah. Okay. A bit, yeah. Sort of, sort of. So, I mean, you know, it, there's there's some history to this. Uh, like, this game is actually part of a series, right? Because uh, back in 2015, I released a strategy RPG called Telepath Tactics, which takes place in the same years um, and shares many of the same systems that you uh, that you'll find, but that was much more straightforward, like Fire Emblem style strategy RPG. But it had cool stuff. Elevation, you could throw enemies into water or lava, knock them off cliffs. Um, you could build stuff. You could like build bridges and barricades and lay traps on the battlefield and all kinds of really cool tactics that Fire Emblem just doesn't mess with. Um, so when I was working on Together in Battle. I was, I think, I think like intelligence systems themselves, I was influenced by the Persona series. And, uh, you know, if you played Three Houses, I mean, it's super obvious. They're just very obviously uh, taking some cues from Persona in that, um, despite the fact that they have denied it. in. But anyway, I was like, yeah, this is super cool. I would love to make a game where uh, your character's can build deeper relationships. And, you know, in fairness to Fire Emblem, they kind of have some of that going on in their games through, the, like, their support systems, but the way Persona does it is, I don't know, I, I just find it really fascinating, the way it becomes this time management game, right, where you're, cho like, you're not just like, okay, I'm going to mush these characters together on the battlefield so they get the little hearts popping over their head every turn. Right in Persona, you have to make very deliberate choices about how you're uh, you're building your. Um, so I don't know. I, I just always thought that was really cool. Um, I didn't want to just recapitulate the support system from any of the Fire Emblem games because, like you know, it's cool, but it's also kind of gamey, and not in like the sense like, oh, this meat is gamey, but you know, 
it's it's very it's very like let's find a way to kind of marry this to the actual gameplay. I know we'll just make it so your characters have to be near each other in battle. That's it. That's that's how you make characters like each other. And uh, I don't know. I, I thought it was, uh, emergent system where characters kind of build relationships outside of your control. So, like, one of the things that I thought was really interesting in, um, gosh, this was before Three Houses. So, like, how, are you familiar with uh, Fire Emblem Awakening or Fire Emblem Fates? Yeah, those are, that's when the first time they split games, right, with those, was those games, and there was, like, the third one or whatever. Yeah, Fates was the first time they actually, like, split a game into multiple releases, as far as I'm aware, maybe, maybe they've done time they went all Pokemon on a Fire Emblem release. Anyway, so Awakening was where they first introduced uh, pair-up mechanics. And there was something about it that really stuck with me. Like, from a mechanical perspective, you know, the way they implemented it was kind of meh. It was actually much more satisfying in Fates, but there was something about the way they implemented it awakening that really stuck in my brain and it really tickled me the right way the thing that I really loved about it was that there you had no control over when characters came to each other's aid it gave I mean it was a very simple thing right it was just a die roll but there was something about the fact that you didn't control it but rather your characters did it. And if I remember right on the that, bat, and from a player point of view, you didn't know the die roll, if I remember right. It was just either, it, it like felt like a dynamic event happened. It, you didn't know until it happened, right? Kind of like a critical hit, chance. But there was something about it that that very effectively, at least for me, furthered the illusion that these characters had agency, Right? So much of that game is just like you picking up two characters and kind of being like, now, nah. right? Because it's, it's one of those games where you're effectively uh, genetically engineering a new generation of super child soldiers that will fight for you. Getting married in that game, don't just say in it. You are telling them who they're going to romance. And there's something about that that I've always found kind of creepy. Um, but when they break from yeah, it, you're and, not big Sims guys, but I understand this as immediately. Well, yes and no. <laughs> I I love the fact. That, well, here's the thing, right? Because The Sims is rather like Fire Emblem Waking. It's a blend, right? If you don't do anything with this, they have agency. They do things. They have need. They will take actions to treat. And I think that's cool as hell. Um, and yeah, so it was that moment in Awakening when I really like meditated on it. I was like, this is actually the thing I really want to capture in Together in Battle. I want these characters to feel like real individuals with real needs and real goals and desires. And you can influence them. Like they'll come to you for advice, but you can't make them be friends 
or lovers, or even get along. If that's your general like idea for that, from a game mechanical point of view, um, is every time I play it, set people will interact that way, or do you have still some of a grammar so I don't know what's happening? Um, there are certain types of interactions that are going to show up every time you play, um, and types of interactions that are not at all guaranteed to show up every time you play. Um, characters progress through... They gain what's called familiarity in the game, and familiarity sort of opens up different kinds of interactions they can have. So when characters first meet... They're not familiar with each other at all. Uh, they have zero familiarity. Uh, all they can do is introduce themselves. And once they know each other, then things start to open up. They can talk about their interests. They can talk about their background. They can talk about their families or their past. Uh, or they can go to town together. Um, and kind of spice this up. Events so characters can get into arts and resolve them. Uh, characters can have crises of confidence that hurt their morale. They can get sick. They can get letters from family members. They can ask you for time off. Like there's all kinds of different things that can happen over the course of the game. And like they, you know, some are very common and some are not. Guaranteed to see characters introduce themselves to each other, but you are not guaranteed to have a character, um, for instance, you know, fall in love with someone, right? Thing to me, how much you've thought about this from a systematic point of view, and I am just picturing in my head how much work this game must be just to balance all of the systems going on? Um, yeah. <laughs> this, game, this game has been a lot of work. Um, but I don't know, that's kind of what I... Uh, making really interesting systems that haven't been made before. Um, that's That's kind of the... That's kind of my, I don't know, claim to fame, I guess, insofar as I have fame, which is debatable. Um. So, so to you, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, from our discussion so far and kind of reading into it, you view then that the thing in this game that really sets it apart then is this idea of the second half of the RPG being something that is alive and you are much more the viewer versus, like, the the god, kind of? Like, you, you are a character in this thing, you get to see what happens versus, as we talked about in Fire Emblem, you are the god in that scenario of you really control what happens. Right. Yeah, so this is where the team management part comes in. You can influence things. You are the boss. You can fire characters. Like, you can just straight up dismiss them if they're being too problematic. And you get to tell people in broad strokes what they're going to do each day, and you can tell them what to do in the evening, although as a general rule, your characters will resent it if you tell them how to spend their evenings, and it will hurt morale if you do it too much. 
But uh, yeah, the idea is very much to make you a participant who is not in complete control. These are characters who you interact with in a much more, I would say, realistic way than uh, characters that you interact with in your typical strategy RPG, where you are effectively God. A lot of sense, and I think it's a very interesting kind of shift in there. I would like to now shift kind of into the more... Yeah, it... Yeah. Okay, I think... I was gonna say, uh, I was gonna say, next, if you don't mind, um, can we shift into the more? I, I, I hate to split the games because obviously they're truly not split, but in my head, kind of talking about them, they're split. Um, kind of talking about like the mm-hmm. more as you described, like during the day, kind of like the combat role of it, and that kind of, kind of what the player does beyond just hanging out with these characters part of the game. Oh sure, yeah. So. The day, right, this is this is where I think the Persona influence shines through most clearly. Uh, in the day, you have a choice of how you spend the day. And interview and recruit new characters. You can go shopping. Um, you can go to the arena. And more options will open up as the game progresses. But you only get to do one thing. And time progresses no matter what you choose. There's like a calendar that you're progressing through and certain events will happen on certain days. And if you're ready, great. And if you're not, well, (laughs) yeah. Um, I think the only kind of want to talk about most though is the actual back. Hello. Hello. Yeah, we're good now. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, um, to the actual battle part, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the combat in uh, in this game, I'm I'm assuming you're not familiar with uh, telepath tactics, so I'll give you the gist. Um, the combat in this game is very similar to telepath tactics. It is effectively. Um, a marriage of every thing that I love in strategy RPGs bound together in a deterministic system. So you've got all this stuff from Final Fantasy Tactics, right? You have all these different classes, you've got backstab damage, um, you know, you've got elevation bonuses if you're using ranged weapons from a, an elevated position. Um, and you've got just tons of character skills that, you know, I, I think at this point there's 154 different skills in the game. Wow. Um, spread. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's six species, 24 base classes with branching promotions when you hit level 20. Um, yeah, so a lot of that stuff, but also there's stuff that I was inspired uh but that was inspired by Fire Emblem. So you've got uh, cavaliers that have uh, Canto, effectively. Um, they can move, attack, and keep moving um, to uh, to kind of allow you to chain together multiple attacks against a single target. 
Um, you've got, um, so one of the, th- I, I think probably the most significant way it's, uh, inspired by Fire Emblem is in the turn structure. So this isn't an initiative-based combat system. Uh, instead, you go army by army. I go, you go. That, that sort of system. Um, so when it's your turn, you have all of your characters and all of your skills and this wide open field of tactical possibilities, and you choose the order in which actions occur. Um, you can actually break up character turns in this game. So you can have a character move out of another character's way, move the second character, do something, go back to the first character and continue taking their turn. Um, you've miscalculated. There's an actual, there's an undo stack. You can just undo everything one by one until you're back where you were. hit that undo stack for a second. So actually, I, I have your Steam page in front of me, and that's something that caught my eye immediately on that. I am... Mm-hmm. So my background's programming. And and I am just picturing the, the technical headache of, of that, if you don't mind, <laughs> if we dig into that for a second, of how the hell you got that torque sure. not everything breaking on you. Um... answer is, I just maintain a list... And the list has a custom data structure in it that keeps track of what action occurred, what is all the relevant data for that action, which character took the action. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, the, the thing that makes it feasible is that there are certain things that will clear the stack. Um, so if you do an attack or you use an item... That clears the stack. It's all just setting up that you can undo unlimited amounts. I am just I am just picturing the technical feat of in my head now. Every action now has to have some form of inverse action. And I'm just and I understand you're just like, oh we can memory stage whatever. But like I don't think people probably fully appreciate probably from a memory point of view how quickly you can get out of hand if you do not code this up correctly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it, uh, I've never experienced any uh, any performance issues from it. So, it's big, I guess, because you always have the actions. I, uh, See, the way I would so cheat it, and this is why people would hate it, is I'd be like, no, no, you go back to your original state, and I'll just remember that versus remembering every single decision. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I implemented so something that didn't do all past that I put in this game is mid-battle saving, and that lets you save at the start of your turn each round. Um, and that's effectively that, right? You can create a kind of a snapshot of, like, this is exactly how everything is right now. Um, Which, in a lot of ways, that's just how safe I states think, work, at least. So, like, I, I think at least that one yeah. has at least some level of a... People go, okay, safe states are a pain in the ass still, but it's a way different probably beast in my head. Yeah, honestly, I think the mid-battle save was a lot more difficult for me to implement just because there are so many after the in this game. Right, like, I, I barely even scratched the surface with what I've said so far. I mean, you've got almost everything on the battlefield is destructible, right? Chopper is 
cut down trees, blow up walls and bridges. Um, you can build new things on the battlefield, so you can like throw down barricades, build new bridges, um, place traps and such, um, freeze water to create ice. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, there's lots of different things that you can do to alter the battlefield. Um, the game has a built-in dialogue tree and scripting system. And that, that in obvious like literally you can just like have your own custom uh, dialogue bran- like branching dialogue and scripts that can just trigger it pretty much any time in battle um, and you know the game has to remember that it has to you know keep track of what's been triggered and what variables have been set and all that it's a uh, that that was pretty challenging to implement but I'm really glad that I did because that was like one of the top wish listed things um, for folks who played telepath. Well, I'd say I'd say that sounds all great, and I feel like this is a challenge that I assume is a fun kind of thing to tackle. Um, as we get to the tail end of this, I'm kind of curious. So, as we talk about, obviously. Uh, you said this is coming out, we'll say, some point in the next couple of months-ish, ish, because it's game dev and you never actually know until that thing exists. Um, is your plan, because I actually didn't see this, to list this game kind of as a full product as it comes out, or is your plan to kind of release this as a more early access state game? So <clears throat> I <laughs> I decided on a somewhat questionable course of action when I was making this game. I decided that uh, I was going to simultaneously develop together in battle and remake Telepath Tactics in this new engine. Um, so I yeah you know really really uh, arguably pretty overambitious, but you know I'm making it work. Um, so what I recently decided is that I need to just get Telepath Tactics out there. It's so close to being done. Um, so I'm currently making a push to just finish remaking that, have that out in the next few months. And then uh, in early uh, 2022, maybe mid-2022, depending on how things go, because you know you can never really predict how long it takes to make a game. Uh, at that point, I will release Together in Battle to early access on Steam. And because it's a roguelite, right? Because the characters are procedurally generated, they're different every time, and because there's random events that are different every time, and, you know, because the game can play out very differently in many respects, uh, I think it's a good candidate for early access development. And that'll give me the flexibility of adding new stuff to it over the course of a few years. A sense. Um, I'm kind of just curious because obviously said this will come out first with Telepath Tactics. What is there going to be a massive change? Like if players played both the old Telepath Tactics and we'll say the new re-release, is it going to be a dramatically different game than for them, or is it going to be kind of like a new, more I'd say modernized refresh of the game that exists already? It is going. To, I mean, it's the same game fundamentally. There are changes. Um, most of the changes are aesthetic. 
Um, the game has proper 3D terrain now, which it did not in its initial uh, 2015 incarnation. Um, in 2015, it was just, you know, pure pixel art all the way. And, uh, you know, that was fine from, like, an art direction standpoint, but I kept running into things like I want to represent elevation, and doing that in a flat 2D environment is difficult, uh, especially because it can lead to deformation of the landscape, right? You you end up distorting distances between points when you try to represent um, elevation using just pure 2D tile sets. So I was like, no more of this. Um, there's a lot of things that just look nicer um, on account of it's in a brand new engine. We've got proper post-processing and like shaders going on, uh, vegetation sways in the wind, effect of bloom and, you know, HDR um, color, which means that things actually look like they glow properly. Um, and, you know, there's also, like, a few, like, mechanical improvements as well. Um, characters no longer counterattack when they're backstabbed. Um, there's a brand new stat characters can get called reflexes, that cause them to turn and face an attack when they're about to get backstabbed. Um, there are tons of new skills. Um, characters now, like, breathe. They, like, stand there and breathe when they're idle. Um, yeah, there's just loads of little improvements in quality of life fixes. Um, one thing that people complained about a lot in the original Telepath Tactics uh, was they just didn't like the character portraits, which I thought they were pretty good, but, you know... That said, there's always room for improvement. Uh, I ended up hiring uh, a fellow, Georgi Minkov, to redo them in a uh, painterly style, and they look gorgeous. They've got proper um, proper expression variants now, so like I can actually have the portraits, you know, look happy or sad or angry or what have you, depending on the dialogue they're delivering, and it it adds a lot, I think. game that it sounds like it's like for people who haven't seen it it will be a complete new game and then for those who have at least it sounds like there'll be a lot of visual and technical improvements to them for them to check out and you said that was probably tail yeah. end of this year that'd be accurate yeah tail end of this year or like very start of 2022 i'm thinking um i've, I've got like maybe three quarters of the game's scenes ironed out and working now. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm just uh, finishing that up and waiting on the uh, the rest of the new portrait art from Georgie, and uh, that should do it. Um, people that are returning, I feel like, are going to especially appreciate the redesigned user interface, the nicer portraits, and the support for mid-battle saving. I feel like those are that and also just, you know, having a more stable uh, engine without any, like, technical hiccups. I think people will really enjoy coming back to the game and seeing how it's been uh, remade. Perfect. Well, as we close this off talking about mostly together in battle, obviously a little bit we talked about there of Tauba Tactics, what is your closing pitch, people, who should go, I guess, check out either of your games coming up soon on Steam? Uh, my closing pitch is this. These are games 
made by an absolute turn-based tactics fanatic. And if you like turn-based tactics, you owe it to yourself to check these games out. You will not be disappointed. Uh, these games are so packed full of cool stuff that you can't find in other tactics games that uh, I, I think I think you'll uh, you'll be pleasantly surprised. Well, Craig, I want to say thank you for sitting down and talking about both these games, and I look forward to, especially for obviously the new one coming out uh, next year, and best of luck as you're finishing up development while balancing apparently two games, which is a lot of work to balance. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. This episode is partially brought to you by the Humble Choice Program. Did you know Humble Bundle has a great monthly subscription service that lets you get a ton of video games every single month? That's right, from plans range from $5 to 20 bucks a month, you get a hold of a bunch of free games they have available to you. And you can use our code down in the description below to go and sign up. It would help our podcast and help you see what great games are available for you this month. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the SWW Show. I'm Mike, and today with me a special guest from not that far around the world, hopefully, uh, to talk about the game they're working on. To get us started, do you mind introducing yourself and the game we're here to talk about? Uh, hello. Uh, thanks for hosting me. Uh, my name is uh, Hannes, and uh, I am uh, one of uh, the developers of a game called Neonix. Uh, Neonix is scheduled for release early next year, uh, hopefully. We've already postponed it twice, I think, uh, for reasons we might get into later. But hopefully it will be like the first quarter next year. Uh, so Neonix is a game which essentially combines the action RPG genre, like think of Diablo, uh, with the bullet hell genre, uh, think of Gradius, for example. Um, and uh, recent games that are similar to it are, for example, Enter the, Enter the Gungeon, uh, which, uh, if you think of Diablo, in Diablo you don't really need to think that much about your positioning. It's more about uh, grinding the best gear, and then you kind of quickly run up to your foes and you defeat them by uh, button mashing, more or less. I mean, there obviously there are variations to the strategy, but it's more about having more about the gear and the talents you put in and the skills you use than where you position your character. Whereas if you play uh, like a, a Gradius, it's really important uh, to position your character correctly as it is in subspace or asteroids or enter the gungeon. And Neonix is in the same way as these games. It's really important how you position your character. Uh, you're this small spaceship in the beginning, then you can get these huge spaceships and drive around instead. And uh, you're flying around, you're uh, defeating enemies, you're unlocking new talents, unlocking new weapons, etc. Yeah, pretty much the same as you would do in Diablo. Um, but then the twist is that you need to really think about how you position your character in this world. And... Um, it's more about skills, uh, more about how you actually play your character. You can have, uh, you can be a beginner, um, uh, and as a beginner, even though you would have a lot better gear uh, than your uh, your your opponent, let's say if you play PvP, you would still not be able to defeat that opponent um, simply because well, it's more than just having good gear. 
so Neonix is sorry. Yeah, I'm, it's easier for me to just start. If you want to keep going on your rant, that's also fine. I was just kind of curious because um, obviously you said there are games in this space that are in some capacity similar, but but on paper. This is, I think, such an interesting space slash a more unusual combination of genres. And I'm just really curious if you could talk about kind of why the team decided to really mash up these genres when there are very few games in the space really doing that. So for me, I think it kind of began with uh, maybe it was Gradius on Nintendo that I played for far too much time. And I really enjoyed, you know, trying to get to the end of Gradius. I don't think I actually managed to beat it when I was a kid, but I really enjoyed that kind of game. And then it went on with the R-Type series and uh, lots of other uh, bulletile games. Uh, but something did not completely click with me. Uh, I really I wanted to progress, like you did in the Final Fantasy series for Nintendo, for instance. Uh, or as you kind of did in the Zelda games, whereas Zelda is more... In Final Fantasy, I like that you, you got many different kinds of gear. You can really grind for the best gear, whereas if you play the Zelda series, you, you, you find a Master Sword, and well, that's it. You don't find a Master Sword plus two damage. You have the Master Sword already. So I really like when, we, when you can kind of grind to get a better character, but you still need to think about... Uh, you still, you still, if you get better at the game, like you get better at dodging bullets, then that means a lot. Uh, and when I took up Diablo in, uh, I think on PC, when was that, 93 or something? Then that kind of clicked for me. I really liked that, uh, the the fast-paced uh, style where every item you get, you're kind of hoping it's legendary. And when you hear that sound, like a legendary item sound, you really, the brain just, well, I need to get it really quickly. <laughs> um, so for me, I think that's when it kind of clicked, that I wanted to build like Diablo with Gradius. And obviously, that's a long time ago. Uh, so I was a kid when Diablo came out. I think it was I was maybe 12, 13, something like that. So I was not ready to make like a huge, grand game. Um, but eventually, I mean, we all get older. And uh, uh, after I finished, uh, at the, I think it was at the kind of when I almost finished my civil engineering, my master's degree, I started thinking about, well, maybe I should make a game. Maybe I should not only play games. I mean, I... I tangled around with various games and mods and etc. But then I kind of thought that, well, making games sounds cool. So how, how does one make a game? So that's kind of how it started with me. I just wanted to learn how does one make a game. And then various iterations later, I think that maybe 2013 or 14, I told a friend of mine that, well, I've been thinking about making like a proper game, not just uh, thinking around with things. Uh, but I also want to le learn how to make a good ga game engine, um, <laughs> which is not a wise choice if you want to uh, if you want to make money. Obviously, then it's better to go with Unity or something like that. Uh, but I said, well, I, he likes to draw stuff, so I said, well, I can make your your drawing is alive. Which um, um, every artist then, you like? Did, you want to see your drawings being used? Work with me. And then every artist is like, wait, there's a lot more than just drawing happening. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess we thought, uh, I very naively thought that, well, this will take like a year or something, no worries. And uh, that was 2013, and then we made like a really crappy first version, and 2014, well, that crappy first version was, it was not good. Um, so I thought, well, it was fun, I mean, it was fun to play, we played some, some lands, etc., uh, but it was really terrible, it crashed all the time, and uh, playing Coop on that, well, 
networking was not uh, up to par. Um, but I thought it was really fun to make it. So we said, maybe we should make something bigger. It might take two years instead of one year. And maybe we should release it on Steam. And uh, so we got started on that. And, uh, well, now we're seven years older and uh, I have two kids. And <laughs> it's still not done, uh, but it's almost done now. It's almost ready for early access. So I think it's been like a long road. I was going to say, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a nice long road of... Also, I think it describes game development really well, is we all thought that games take way less time to make than they actually do. Just because yes. it's a combination of... Obviously, there's a scope problem. There's, there's, creep, there's feature creep. And then there's just... Games are complicated. And even now, computers aren't always built with what we need them to do in mind between memory problems or getting things to work or even dumb things like save states are just the biggest pain in the ass. And uh, a project such as Neonix, Neonix in essential, essentially it combines uh, infinite uh, procedural generation uh, with uh, uh, online multiplayer uh, networking. So those are really tough things to, to fix uh, and to make seamless. Um, so that's, that has been like a tough, uh, tough choices that we made uh, early on, that we wanted to make it really grand, you know, have lots and lots of procedurally generated items, procedurally generated infinite world to explore, and uh, another player should be able to join like many, many hours. Maybe if one player has played for a week, he should still be able to join this game and uh, uh, have it all seamlessly work. Yeah, there is, there's a couple things there I'm very and curious you, why you... So- if you don't mind, I'm kind of curious. So obviously, you released a game kind of already, but this is kind of your first like go through Steam pipeline, go through this whole thing, and early access. Whoa. It's the second time actually, but uh, the first one was just uh, I made something using Unity uh, because I wanted to learn Unity at some point. I think it was two years ago maybe, and they released a game called VR Gallery. Um, through Unity, and I think it, I think it took me two days to learn Unity, like the, the necessary functions in Unity to just ship the game, and I think it took three days to do the, the Steam stuff. So uh, using Unity, like a complete game engine, that took like a week, and I spent seven years with this game. Uh, obviously, this is much more complex. It's networking, and it's uh, my own game engine, and it's uh, it's huge and infinite, etc. So uh, lots of more difficult Very tasks. Very curious on the one thing you touched right there to me is so after using Unity, and I would argue Unity is a relatively pretty open game engine of what things you can make it do. Why did you decide that? I understand there might be some fun too, right? So maybe that's part of it. Why did you decide otherwise that you needed to go in and make your own game engine in like C or C plus plus compared to just like writing one on top of Unity's base layer? Uh, so only because I thought it would be fun, and I still think it's fun. <laughs> um, fun part makes sense. I was just curious from a commercial game and time point of view, the the like yeah, the, time the time basis on that. Terrible. So using Unity is was a, a lot smoother in many cases. There are some cases I remember, like in this VR gallery that uh, that is on Steam. Um, you you can kind of uh, you load your images. Uh, you just you choose choose a browser your folder. Uh, imagine you're in VR now, so you're using your Steam kit, uh, your um, your HTC Vive, or your something like that. And uh, in VR space, you you load a folder, and all the images in that folder gets loaded to to Unity to 
to the game engine. And uh, you can browse your images and you can rescale them, etc. In, in real time. And that was not easy to get working. Like the entire game, everything except um, browsing your images in real time, that was easy to get working. But when I made it, I don't know if the, there's a difference now, but at, at that time, uh, it was not possible to manually uh, load an image to uh, uh, to a, um, a GameFab object uh, in in a background thread. And if I load it on the main thread, it could lock the entire thread for... Like, and, and the GUI, essentially, for many seconds. And imagine you have a folder with 1,000 images, then you would, like, lock the entire game for half an hour. <laughs> so that was not acceptable. And I remember I had to reverse the uh, the image loading library that Unity had, uh, which was open source. I could download, like, uh, uh, the DLL for, for the, that library they used, and I could run that in a background thread and get a, a sequence of bytes which... Uh, Unity would accept as a proper image because, it, well, they used that library as well. And then I could load that in a main thread when I had the complete sequence of bytes available. But getting that worked, I would like 50% of the development time, which was really short in this case, but, but still. So I imagine if you use Unity for these kind of big, bigger projects, like Neenix might be 150,000 lines of code at the moment, um, I would imagine I would encounter these kind of issues later on as well. I think that's probably um, valid. Apart from... I was say, that's probably a valid, fair critique. That's kind of the joke, is that Unity is the everyman's engine, because it's a lot of indie games use it because of some things you could do with it that are relatively easy out the box, as you learned, right? So, like, I, I always think of, like, in Unity, how easy it is to grab a single game object into a scene where, like, when you write your own engine from scratch, just getting to that point can take you weeks sometimes. <laughs> Yes, so Unity is really good for like quickly releasing something, like the VR gallery I, I built. Because it's really easy to understand how it works, it has a physics engine, it has a renderer, it has even has shader graphs now, so you don't even need to write any code for the shaders. So it's really easy to use, uh, which is good. But uh, I, don't, I don't think it's that fun. <laughs> and uh, for me, I guess there are... There, there's the possibility of unforeseen uh, issues when you have something that's kind of locked down still. So if you if you use the engine as it's supposed to be used, then everything will be no problems. But if you get kind of a little bit out, outside of the scope of the engine, um, then you might be out of luck. Um. A valid and fair critique of why using your own engine. The other thing that I am actually curious about... Um, from a, which is a couple things that from a from a like scope of your game for it launching into early access and being in development for this long is, correct me if I'm wrong. You guys are going to have a version of multiplayer at launch, correct? Yes, multiplayer is kind of the the center of the core of the game. So the the entire game has been built uh, with the purpose of multiplayer. Obviously, you can still play multiplayer single player, as you can in Diablo or. Enter Gungeon. Enter Gungeon is actually only single player, I guess, but but it's more fun. I mean, uh, so take for example conditions. Uh, most conditions are applied through area of effects, so that this means that well, it works in single player, but if you play cooperatively, you will get like the benefit of your uh, your co-players uh, item bonuses as well because uh, it's area of effects. Obviously, I think you made a good case for what I think you and I there are saying how it is very, like, in your game's vision, it's very necessary. 
I I am curious if you don't mind talking about how much extra work or probably development time that probably caused on the game because I think it gets lost to a lot of people how hard even simple networking can be. Yes, I think you kind of need to, from my perspective, you need to think about networking when you start developing the game. Obviously, I'm not up to par with all the uh, more abstract uh, um, libraries that are available for game makers because I use a low-level networking library, which is basically uh, write bytes. Uh, and then uh, if, if, you, if you go my route, where you, where you write bytes instead of uh, saying write uh, health points, <laughs> then uh, you need to write serialization functions for every single piece of uh, uh, of unit every single piece of uh, scenario that you, your game contains and every scenario is different obviously if you have uh, unit positions then it might not matter if there is a small difference and you just want to get uh, the positions uh, across as soon as possible but maybe it matters if you're, uh, you want to sync the th things that are closer to your character first because those are seen in camera and you don't want them to kind of uh, behave weird whereas if uh, a player picks up uh, a weapon, then it's really important that that gets in correctly. You can't sync a weapon and have it uh, plus 1,000 damage incorrectly because um, that would kind of break the experience. Uh, so basically, I would say it's like you have to write serialization functions for every single piece of uh, scenario and equipment that uh, your game contains. The same as if you would write custom uh, serialization functions to disk. Yeah, no, it's just, it just wild to me. So most of my work has been either not networked or local networked, which is, I think, a way different... It's usually easier problems, a different problem. And that's always wild to me when you hear like, games like you're doing, like, where it's like out-the-box, we have networking across multiple people, across long places. I'm always like, there is just, just a baseline extra headache to every step of development, I always find it impressive. Yes, there, there is a lot of headache. <laughs> you can sum, sum it up like that, I guess. So, um, there's a lot of, lot of things you need to think about when the latency could be like up to a second for some people. If, you, if I would play with, with you in the US, I'd probably have like a few hundred milliseconds of latency at least. And obviously, you can't wait for the packet to, packets to get across before you allow a player to move. But uh, um, I still believe in the firm server-client solution where the server kind of uh, uh, acts based on the inputs of the client. So the client doesn't say, well, I'm at this position because it's really easy to, to cheat then as a client. You just say, well, I'm here. I did one billion damage on this character. Server <laughs> um, in which, your which... world should have all of the decision-making points. So the client might say, like, I want to move forward and the server will go yes or no. Or the client might say, like, I shot this guy. The other guy will say, I got hit by this, and the server knows what that damage should be. Is that kind of how the world yeah, would be Yes, so the client basically says, well, I want to move forward. Or rather, I'm pressing forward on the controller. I'm pressing uh, shoot left. I'm pressing shoot right. I'm pressing use uh, item X. I'm pressing whatever. And uh, Or I'm aiming at this direction. And then the server looks at, well, yes, okay, this is reasonable. You're aiming this direction. And uh, you press these buttons. Okay, this is what happens. Uh, and then the server acts based on the input on, of the client. Uh, but the client doesn't wait and see, well, is it okay if I press this button? They instantly act on the input um, of the player, of the local player. 
and then they kind of simulate well, well, what would happen if you press the shoot button, then users should start shooting. Um, <clears throat> and depending on the scenario, um, you will, um, for example, for really fast uh, weapons where the, it's not really important that the exact positions of the bullets are synced, the client might be allowed to, to start, like, create the bullets themselves. Whereas if you have uh, uh, more important bullets, like a missile or a huge torpedo or something that you do huge damage, then the client is not allowed to create that kind of bullet. The server says, well, a bullet was created here. And then the client looks up, okay, so it was created 300 milliseconds ago at this position. I, okay, so I had to move it a little bit. And when it comes to damage, then the server decides everything. So the client just simulates the damage on local and see, well, I did 400 damage on this guy. But the actual damage is uh, sent uh, by the server. So then there are lots and lots of scenarios. Uh, it's probably, I mean... 20,000 lines of code just to handle the networking networking in Enix. So since there are so many different scenarios available. That is, it's it's just wild, because yeah, you said you'd begin with, you talked, I think you said around 120,000 lines of code was your estimate, and you said 20,000 is just, you know, the networking, which which is always just wild, yeah. because it's it's the nature of this beast, right? You have to obviously have networking code that can handle these massive things, but it adds so much extra work. Speaking of extra work, I yes, am, it's a... as, as we were talking, as you said, going into hopefully beginning of next year, you guys will be launching into early access. I was hoping if we could spend the last probably few minutes talking about kind of what a player can expect when the game launches into early access, and then what can they expect like 12 months down the road when it looks like your game will be out of early access, and kind of the differences between the two. So when when it enters early access, then they can expect like a fully functional, uh, quite polished experience with three acts and uh, forty levels in Linux. Um, so imagine it it will work uh, flawlessly, hopefully, <laughs> uh, for players to to explore this infinite world. Um, and Linux uh, uh, is built on acts, uh, same as Diablo. And the first three acts are already completed. Uh, there's been an alpha slash beta test going. I don't know what you would call it since we launched in early access. I guess I call it beta previously, but I would say it's more of an alpha slash beta test. And it's been going for a year about now, uh, with maybe 70 persons in total um, that's played it. And there's very few crashes and uh, big issues. Most issues have involved uh, polishing, adding new items, um, uh, rebalancing uh, different parts of the game. So hopefully it should be quite balanced, but not completely balanced, and uh, fully working for online coop up to six people, or PvP, if you like to play PvP instead, uh, for maybe 40 to 60 people. Uh, we have not properly tested it for 60 people yet, so I think I will ship it at 40, and then we'll see how many, how many people that actually like to explore the PvP aspects. And as I said, the, uh, it's built on acts, and the first three acts will be available as soon as we launch early access. Um, as uh, as well as uh, you can you can uh, think of it as a new game plus mode. So when you complete Nenix, when you complete these first three acts, then you unlock a new difficulty level with better tier items and uh, where the game essentially behaves a bit differently. So the enemies you encounter, they're different than you would exp than than the previous time you encountered them in the uh, normal mode um, and the play time I think are 
the alpha testers have clocked in like at most maybe around 200 300 hours uh, in the within, within these three acts and the game plus mode during this year i think yeah, top maybe 2 300 hours something like that and then uh, <clears throat> during early access then we want to add a four fact which we have kind of started working on but it's far from complete so perhaps at the six month mark out of 12 months in early access which is what we what we aim for we would release the four fact and raise the level cap to 60 um, and uh, apart from uh, the four fact we also hope to add a few more game modes like uh, one game mode uh, which we have thought about uh, um, the, the game modes that we ship with is basically uh, the campaign mode, which you can explore over single player or coop with six people. And then there's the free-for-all PvP, and then there's the uh, capture flag or defeat enemy base PvP. And uh, then there's the arena mode, which basically involves you can encounter enemies that uh, you have defeated previously. You can kind of spawn them in, in an arena just to try to um, and, and then uh, try to defeat them in this arena um, and try new strategies against these enemies. So let's say you're at a boss and you can't really defeat that boss. You really have difficulty doing it. Then you can spawn that boss in the arena and try to defeat it. Um, well, if you, you obviously have to defeat it first. You have to defeat it in the normal mode. <laughs> but then you can try it uh, in the arena and see, well, how can I better beat this boss? And... Uh, then we have the fleet commander mode, which is something we have thought about a lot. And uh, that's the uh, think about it as uh, summoning a fleet. It's the same as the arena arena mode that you can uh, summon enemies that uh, you have previously defeated, and uh, uh, then you try to destroy your opponent's base base using these uh, enemies that you have summoned, um, like. Uh, gratuitous space battles, uh, which is a game on Steam, basically. You have these really large-scale space battles using the enemies that you have defeated. Um, then apart from that, there will be more items. There are already lots of items. I think we're up to 200 weapons, where each weapon can have uh, 15 modifications, so there's, there's already almost too much variety, I think. But there's still... Uh, beta testers who really want specific new cool items and uh, new abilities, new talents, etc. Um, so there will be more things to do, even though there's already um, a lot, many years worth of, of, of things in the game. And I think one of the reasons is that I really enjoy designing new weapons and designing new uh, modifications and uh, ships, etc. Uh, they will also be more polish. There, this just sounds like. Uh, this sounds like. You, um, so players can expect a lot. I feel like is the moral of this from both a, um, from a early access launch to the, that final. Sounds like twelve months. Sounds still like the timeline for this final release, roughly of the game. I am generally curious. Then, after all of this, we've said now the ultimate pri- thing, which I have not seen anywhere listed. So whether you have one available, or if you don't, just let us know too. Do you do you get, you have a general idea what players can expect this game to cost, either during early access or after the fact? Uh, there's been a lot of discussions on on price. Um, 
And uh, I still have not really decided. We haven't really decided on the exact price, but I think it will be somewhere between 10 and 20 US dollars. With it being cheaper during early access, I think it will be perhaps 20% reduction during early access for those who want to participate and improve the game before it, it, it is properly released. That is, I think, impressive. I think I would personally argue, uh, as someone who's dealt with this stuff for, that you should aim on the side of it being a little bit more personally. But that's me, and obviously it's for you and your team to decide. But as the like 20,000 foot advice always, I would probably argue this game sounds like it's more of a bang for a buck than that. But it sounds like you guys have a plan, and if players want to go check it out, the game will be out, hopefully, as you said, early 2022. Um, so for closing us out, do you have any final ways you want to sell the game to the players or any final places you should be, we should be sending them? So uh, I, I would summarize the game as uh, Diablo plus Gradius, but more crazy. If anyone has played the Diablo 2 mod Median Excel, uh, that's kind of where we were going with the, uh, with the craziness. Uh, so if you haven't checked out Median Excel, you should do that. <laughs> uh, and Neonix uh, is available on Steam, and there is a demo that we had, uh, have had updated even, uh, I think, since we had uh, the first uh, uh, Steam Festival a year ago. Um, and uh, well, so go check out the demo and download it and it contains uh, maybe one hour worth of content out of these 300 hours that I mentioned. <laughs> um, but I think that will kind of, if you like the demo, then you will like the the proper release, release as well. Well, I want to say thank you for taking time out of your day to talk about Nenex. And hopefully people go check it out. And then it looks like it is available to do this right now. So as I like to tell people, no matter what, and every indie dev will appreciate this, Go on the Steam page, which we'll have links in the description below, and hit that wishlist button, as as anyone will probably say, that will help the game a ton, especially before pre-orders are open. Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely correct. Thank you. <laughs> well, again, thank you for your time, and enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Thank you for letting me part of your show. This podcast was a production of The SWW Show. To learn more, go to theswwshow.com. Remember, you can follow the show on Twitter at The SWW Show. You can follow me at Mikey underscore Maroney. You can follow AJ at Lowseatboard. Remember, new episodes premiere on Friday, 9 a.m. Central Time on anchor.fm slash SWW and podcast services around the globe.